We will challenge ourselves today talking about God's second institution of delegated authority by turning to, um, where would be a good place that I've already thought through? 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, please. 1 Corinthians 11. You first hour campaigners don't need to be told how to find 1 Corinthians, but uh, you, it's almost to the end of your Bible. And, um, and you find 13 letters from Paul, and 1 Corinthians is the second one of those. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And uh, chapter 11 is a challenging chapter because it talks about head coverings and the Lord's table. And a lot of times we want to skip the head covering passage because it's challenging to us and culturally uh, involved and detailed and go to the Lord's Supper passage because it's pretty straightforward and clear. And um, I'll just summarize my view. I did a paper on head coverings when I was in seminary this last round. And um, um, I think that it's, it's going to be very challenging to f- fulfill the instruction here that women would have a physical covering on their heads. It would be very challenging because of the archaeological reality that we're not really sure what that would have looked like. That's one of the problems. Is There is a cultural thing that everyone seems to know this is how we do it. This is how women show that they're married and under their husband's authority, and uh, we don't have that in this culture anymore. What the settlers did, if you've ever watched Little House on the Prairie, ladies had a little bonnet on, a little tie underneath. Definitely not what Paul is looking at when he talks about this head covering. I know there's been an interpretation you might have heard that the woman's hair is her covering, so she has to have her hair covered, head covered with hair, and so there's a theory that even extends to the beehive hairdo, because now her head is really covered, because she's got her hair like sitting on top like a hat. Um, those of you who advocate for that kind of hairstyle, it's magnificent, love it, but that's not what Paul's talking about. And when he says he's given her hair as a covering, he doesn't mean that, um, that she needs to wear it like a crown or something. Um, and, and, and so there is a physical head covering they would have worn or they did wear, and it did symbolize in their culture that they are wives under the uh, auspices of their household, of their husband. And, and, that, and that that was the only right way for them to publicly pray or prophesy was to, to be in line with God's institutions. And so uh, in our day, see, people don't like this, but the, the people that want to do head coverings, whatever that would be, it's probably some sort of shawl. But um, you've got the Muslim thing with the, um, with the job, and, um, and we don't subscribe to that ideal, ideology at all and what that symbolizes in our culture. And, uh, and it is very tightly connected to culture. If I wore to church what Paul wore to church when he would assemble with God's people and went to assemble as the church, if I wore what Paul wore, you would think it was dress-up day because that's part of how culture is, is we kind of fit in. We kind of uh, go with, um, with the, what, the, the norms and standards of the society. And I know that I don't look like a pastor anymore. If I come up here in a jacket with a tie, I'm supposed to have, you know, um, a nice pressed, perhaps short sleeve dress shirt untucked. That's, that's the, that tells you it's a pastor now. But I'm just old, old school and I belong to a, a, a bygone culture. And what I'm saying by wearing a tie and jacket is specific. I'm saying what we're doing here is significant and important. And when the, when the people that are significant and important in their work stop wearing like this and they start doing something different, then we'll do something different. Um, you know, imagine going to court 
before the judge, you know, where the really important people and, um, and making your case with your hair untucked and sorry, your shirt untucked and your hair spiked up. And that's not, that's not how we do it. Um, no press conferences from any uh, heads of state out, out of a jacket and tie. And I'm not saying I'm a head of state. I'm saying what we're doing is important. So see, that's cultural expression. That's what we're saying by this. I don't think I'm important. I think God's word and you and, and the work of the, the ministry of the gospel is important. And so there's something special about coming together. And that's how that's that's the impact of the gospel on culture. That's see what I mean? It's it's cultural. I, I, I'll just while we're on this topic of culture and clothing, Dr. Dwight Pentecost had a great story of uh, mission work. He was invited all over the world to go preach, and he did, and um, had this, this great experience in the Philippines somewhere between the 60s and the 80s. Went to the Philippines, and they were so excited to have Dr. Pentecost. And um, he had brought a suit to preach in and, um, and for Sunday morning at the church, and the elders came to him the day before and said, um, are you going to preach in a suit and Dr. Pentecost said, I always do. And he said, but I want to fit, you know, whatever the extra. They said, well, here, that isn't the most, um, um, th- that's not the most formal way you could do what you do. It doesn't mean the same here, that you would wear a coat and tie. What we wear for formal occasions that would, not super formal, but, you know, church, would be this wedding shirt thing that they wear. Have you seen it? It's the short sleeve uh, you've seen it. <laughs> Is that what it's called, a wedding shirt? It's called uh, Baron Pagano. It's made of um, pineapple fiber. Pineapple fiber. And it's, it's, it's very, um, I think there's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into it. It's, it's a fancy short sleeve. To us, it looks like a short sleeve untucked dress shirt while we're there. But, uh, but it's, got, it's got pleats and, and things sewn into it. And, uh, and they brought him one and said, we would much rather you preach than this. And... Um, so he did, and he showed up Sunday morning, and everyone had a suit and tie. <laughs> and my assumption is that they all wanted to dress under the pastor so that he was in the, the, the special thing. I think that's probably what was going on. Anyway, culture is funny this way, and, um, and part of the problem of our time is that we're in this shift of, of Western culture is dissolving, right? And... And we're not dissolving. The culture is dissolving around us. And um, so when you talk about clothing and uh, what's appropriate and what it signifies, which is the, a lot of the topic of 1 Corinthians 11, you have to be uh, careful with this. The argument for women covering their heads when they pray publicly, since I think prophecy has run its course, we don't prophesy now because the, con- the canon is complete. I don't believe, we're, I don't believe I'm prophesying. I think we're preaching the prophetic word of God. But in first century, they were prophesying. Um, when women publicly pray, the issue is the demonstration, the knowledge, the awareness that if there is a symbol that we generally accept that is submission to husband, you would adopt it. As opposed to being flagrantly opposed to submission to husband, and I am not going to submit to my husband. All the women that covered their heads said that my hair is for my husband or something. Mod- it's a modesty issue. Um, they were saying something about being married. And we, again, in our culture, that's not what it means if you walk around with your head covered. And so I would say I've known brethren, women who believe that they're supposed to cover their heads. 
And uh, one lady would have in her Bible, a well-worn Bible, by the way, beloved sister in Christ would have a little knitted, uh, I, would, I call it a doily. It wasn't a doily. It was something crocheted. But she had this little, little round piece of fabric, and she would put it on top of her head quietly because it wasn't a head-covering church. She would put it up there and pray, and then take it off, put it back in her Bible when, when, the, when, when the pastor finished praying. And that was her idea of 1 Corinthians 11. And I, I don't think that's what the passage requires. But she's trying to do what she thinks it means. And I can't falter for that. That's her conscience. Nevertheless, the point of the passage is not what you're wearing. It's who we are and how we live. So I'll read it. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that concludes the thoughts of chapter 10. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And I will be very careful to point out when we translate this in detail it's the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't just mean a general man is the head of, a, of, of any woman. It's specific to marriage when he's saying this. Then he says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she's one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. See, if, if you're demonstrating that it's a dishonor to her not to have her head covered, and, the way, and what that represents is as if her head were shaved, then the, the covering he's talking about can't be her hair. And there's a logical process I can walk you through, but I hope you can just, in summary, if it's as if her head was shaved, if she shows up without a head covering to pray and prophesy, then the covering he's talking about cannot be her hair. Because she has hair, and it's open and exposed, and it, as if, he says it, it ought to be shaved if she's going to disgrace herself this way. And that's a great disgrace, especially in that culture, and I suspect all cultures, when a woman is, um, is dishonored this way. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off, for it is a disgr- it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off uh, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. All right? Verses 5 and 6 really tell me it, you can't s- kind of sketch out of this with, with it being her hair. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image of glory of God, but the woman is the glory of a man. <gasps> there's, a, there's a creation order that Paul is referring to, and he's not uh, in a, on, on a, a trajectory from Old Testament to now where women are no longer um, in, in a creation order, which is one, one way the liberals get around this. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. This is the the creation order argument. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority. And my Bible puts symbol. It just says an authority. uh, And it's hard to, to think it means other than a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So she's signifying something to the angels. Now, if the word symbol is right, and I think it is a right uh, interpolation, a right understanding of what Paul is saying, then the angels are not uh, at risk of somehow if they see a woman's hair. What the angels are observing is whether we're submitting to God's order. 
And if we're showing that submission, the angels see it. If we're not showing the submission, they don't see it. So the brazenness that is, uh, that is being taken as Christian liberty in Corinth, he's saying this isn't the way. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And that's why people say that verse means that the hair covering he's talking about is, no, no, woman is different from man, man is different from woman, and there is uh, an appropriateness to nature that Paul is describing. He's calling on natural law, as it were, to describe it. We all sort of know. But if one is inclined to be uh, contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. So, wow, this is a tough passage because it's supercharged with cultural things, the cultural symbol of authority. And what people will do is say that was that culture, this is now. Men were over women in that culture, not now. And they'll disregard God's creation order. So here's the way I break this down. The demonstration of a wife's submission to her husband in that culture involved a head covering out in public, and they should have worn it because of God's creation order. The creation order doesn't change, and the symbol was for the angels, not the actual head covering itself, but the representation of submission. So, I don't think that in this culture, head covering is the order of the day, but if it was, I would say, if you're going to do this, it's probably something that covers all of your hair in sort of a shawl type thing. This a little hat, a little, little bonnet, a little hair coming out. Nope, nope, you got to really cover the hair. It's for your husband, that kind of thing. So um, I take the symbol as cultural, and I take the creation order as eternal from God's original design of man and woman, and we don't stop being men and women ever. And marriage runs its course with this life. When we die, we're, we're free from the bond. Now, I didn't say bondage. I just said the bond of marriage. <laughs> but, um, but apparently, that's, that, that's not... Um, all that your sex is about is whether you're married. Apparently, it's not all that there is to it. And so I just, it's a difficult passage to work through. Well, let's talk about God and government because I believe that this institution of marriage, which Paul is describing in difficult language for me, uh, is, is a divine institution of delegated authority. And this is super offensive uh, to a culture that is desperate to reject all vestiges of delegated divine authority. We don't want God. We don't want to obey God. We don't want God's way to be uh, the way. And we just feel, <clears throat> I just want to have it my own way. This is just our sin. And so we need to be careful about this. Now, I'll open with 1 Corinthians 11. I'll close with Ephesians 5, which is a, a very explicit passage about roles in marriage and really does help with explaining what, what, in what sense is a woman to be submissive to her husband. But let's get to uh, some theology as we, as we um, talk about this. We've talked about volition as God's great delegation of divine authority. 
And I'm calling this series God and Government. It might be surprising to you that I would include household. I would say what a husband and wife, the relation between husband and wife is a delegated authority or government. But I think that's how it works. I've shown you this slide before, not this one. I think all of the derivative institutions that involve your volition and government, where you make a decision uh, that might have impact on people under you in some sense, under your decision-making authority, like fathers and their children or parents and their children, or, or in business or in the local church where there's an authority structure. I believe these are all delegated authorities from God. And, and when you say it that way, then marriage is the same type of thing as civil government. It's the same kind of thing. I didn't say that there are marriage police, right? I'm saying that the delegation of authority from God is the issue. And your response to that and your execution of that, your relationship to that is really what I want to focus on. So I've said that I think that your volition, your capacity to make decisions is the first and most important piece in all delegated authority. If your boss tells you to go sweep, for one silly example, you've got an office and the boss says, go sweep the floor. The boss, let's say in this case, has the right to say that. He might do some modern leadership techniques to say, "Mm, you know, wouldn't it be great if we wouldn't swept the floor? Or some other, you know, what do you think we should do about the floor? Let's give you some ownership of this and, and empower you to think through, you know, that's your floor. What if we swept it? And, and then eventually the guy's like, I, I, I don't know what you're saying. Would you please go sweep the floor? Oh, okay, yeah, I know, now I know what you want. So he goes and sweeps the floor. The boss has the right in this circumstance with this particular arrangement to say, please go sweep the floor. That's what you're being paid for. This is kind of how it works. All right. You don't have to go sweep the floor. I love that word have to. It's the most imprecise thing. We are trying to do a surgery with a butter knife or a machete. We're trying, to, we're trying to do something very specific with something very blunt. Have to. What does have to mean? Well, in a sense, you're under obligation to do it because that's the arrangement of the authority structure. You are under obligation. You're supposed to. But that does not necessarily mean that you will get up and go sweep the floor. I have a parent with children. Go clean your room. They're under obligation, but they don't do it. Right? Well, my kids do. Well, congratulations. There's a volition component in the execution of anything under authority. God said don't eat. They ate. God said love one another as I've loved you. We do or we don't. These are are volitional uh, opportunities that you don't have to, but you can't control the consequences. And that's the issue of volition. And it's the missing thing. And you and I have to recognize this. Now, listen, we're made in God's image with this capacity to choose. And we're, we're required by God to respect this. We're required by God to respect this in others. You can be just as coercive as is appropriate within that frame of authority. But you have to recognize this person's going to make that choice. They're going to decide what they're going to decide. A lot of life is fishing, and I don't mean spearfishing. Well, they bite or not, here's the bait, put it out there. Would you please? No? Okay. Well, no, not going to bite today. It, it, there's, a, there's a relationship between the fisherman and the fish. And the fish has to choose to go for that bait. And I, I don't mean to say you're manipulating people. I'm just saying every interaction with other people is volitional. 
And it's really important to recognize that because we honor God's image in other people. All of these derivative institutions of God's mandate of, 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 of volition to each human being, they all are interrelationships of man and God and man with men on our choices, on our volition. And it's vital. We've stumbled across this in our culture, as I've mentioned, where the new morality sexually, the only moral thing, the only issue in sexual morality is consent. The, the idea of sexual consent, anything besides that, unless you're Good, good Morning America hosts, anything besides that is, is not subject to moral judgment because it's none of your business what people do and what they want and blah, blah, blah. And so that's our culture does recognize volition when they say that there is a consent issue between consenting adults. And if you have two adults and there is not consent, then we have a crime. We have something that needs to be addressed. And, that, and we're right to say it. We're right to say it. Uh, now, of course, I don't believe that God's only revelation about sexual morality is consent. That's man's rejection of God's revelation. God has a lot to say about this. But we have stumbled across the issue of volition in this, in this case. We did it recently. The Supreme Court, um, I guess, handed down a decision recently that uh, this mandate, this federal mandate, that you must put this in your body because we said so, because we've, uh, we've, we've done a, a, a public health decision and, and you have to do this. Well, that takes away the individual's volition of sovereignty over their physical body. And that's, that runs counter to the entire project and the entire arrangement of our government where we said... Maximum individual autonomy, not to in, infiltrate someone else's autonomy and mess with their volition, but to manage yourself. You do you. That's kind of how we set it up, and we, we, we treasure that, um, but we seem like we throw it away pretty quick, too. And so this idea of, of autonomy in terms of, um, of this is your body, and no one has a right to inflict itself, himself or herself onto that is part of this, this recognition of government, of, of, of God's delegated government. So volition is central to all these institutions. I don't want to do that. I believe all government starts with self-government, and that's the problem of human government. All government starts with what will you do with what God has told you. And we've been messing this up from the very beginning, and everybody is right to complain about every authority structure. They say that um, soldiers aren't happy unless they're complaining, right? But they're complaining on a full stomach, you're in good shape. That's pretty much how it is. Well, that's because they're fallen, broken people working for other fallen, broken people who are in some spectrum of, of success, selfish or selfless. Somewhere along this continuum, they're doing uh, what they're doing in the operation for the mission. And all the fraud, waste, and abuse and the exorbitant you know, uh, just, just fraud of, of uh, government stuff explains why, uh, show, demonstrates, I should say, that we have this problem of volition. The tanker that's, you know, I once witnessed that we have extra parts. Hey, those parts came from somewhere. They're for something. They're labeled. Yeah, we don't know what they're for. They're out on the field, and they just fling them off the back deck of the tank. What was that? That's we parts. We. And you say, that was probably a twenty-five thousand dollar part. The way they the way they build the government for these stupid things, well, some expensive thing, and um, you know, auto parts are expensive, and then taken to government military uh, designation, and, and just this happens all over. And these are volitional moves that are being made by people because why? Well, it was four o'clock. 
If we don't get everything done, we can't get off, can't, can't get off by 4.30. It's government work, 4.30. I mean, that, you're late if you're still there at 4.30 in <laughs> some quarters. And so volition, it's, you're like, oh, it's gross. It's rampant. It's everywhere. And it's because of people's individual decisions. But self-government. See, if everybody did the right thing, the, the bureaucracy would dissolve, I think, if everybody was doing their thing. And I think volition is the great delegation of God's authority and our capacity to make decisions, as I've said. You're stepping on something that God made this person able to do when you try to co-opt someone else's volition. That's why we hate instinctively manipulative people. That's why we feel someone's working us. That's why, that's why sales gets a bad name, because the salesman acts like he's your friend. He acts like he's got your best interest at heart. He's trying to close He's got a job to do. He's closing a sale. You're a number. And, and that's the truth. And uh, the honest salesman deals with you that way. Hey, we got the best part, and I'll be here and provide customer service and blah, blah, blah. But he's not trying to work you. He's not trying to sell you, except on the value of uh, this transaction that's mutually beneficial. And so when we're trying to co-opt someone else's volition, we're stepping on something that is divine, that is God's arrangement. See, every decision that God sets you up to make is an opportunity for you to worship him with that decision. And what I mean is, why do you do what you do? You have a chance, an opportunity. I shouldn't say chance because I don't believe in luck or chance. I believe in God. But you have an opportunity that he's arranged for, to, for you to do something for him. I've got a big decision to make. I don't know what to do. Well, have you prayed about it? No, I need to do that. What, what do I expect from prayer? I expect to glorify God. I expect to include my dad in the, in the situation, the conversation. And I don't necessarily wait for a message from heaven. I expect to tell him, God, I want to do this well. The reason we don't pray when we have a big decision is because we're not thinking in terms of doing it God's way or for his purpose. Because we're hung up on ourselves or some other thing that is not related to the worship opportunity at hand. That I have a decision to make. Which one worships God? Which, which of the two options? You see, and sometimes the option is do something or don't do something. But the building team is facing this. We have the choice as a church family. We've been wrestling with this since I've been here. We had a decision in 2015 to build. You know, we're going to do something at some point with God provides. Right? We made a decision. We volitionally arranged, and I think it was unanimous. And if you didn't want it, you were anonymous. <laughs> we got a decision to make. Don't get nervous as I talk about the building. It's, you drove up, you saw it as you came up here. Okay, The town sees it. What are we doing? There is do something, there is do nothing. So far, we've opted for the latter, gravity, and, uh, and the, God's work that he's allowing us to do are starting to say, you're going to have to do something. Nothing is going to be doing something pretty soon. And so what, what, what's the point? The point is that the question of building is a question of worship to God. Why would we do anything as opposed to not do anything? If I do nothing, it needs to be to God's glory for his purpose because we're about his mission, because we want to be in his will. If we do something, same reasons. And which one of those two uh, it fits the circumstance? And that's wisdom. That's the way you make decisions in a frame of wisdom. God, I want to worship you in the making this choice. When you have a hard decision to make and you're wondering, and it's your volition, and you got like, ah, you've entrusted this to me, and it's a dilemma, this is a great moment to go to God in prayer and tell him that and say, I want to worship you in this choice. 
I need you to help me with resolve and strengthen me that I feel this way tomorrow and the next day and the next day. As I take a step in faith, as I trust you that you have me and that this is the one, this is the way that seems to be the most honoring to you. God, I do make this decision in a desire to be honoring to you. Every wedding should have this as the forefront in this decision that we're making. All other institutions besides your walk with God, your individual volition, are derivative of volition, as I've said. In other words, all parties in the institution have this power of independent choice. I've made that point. I think I've beaten the dead horse. And so now we need to uh, address the pieces of the institutions. In all cases of any government authority, any, any regulation, anything that's going on with, with multiple persons, there's legislation and there's execution. There's legislation, which is law, and execution, the governing authority that carries out the legislation. And this is true in a little household where we've got rules. We don't say these words. We don't, uh, we don't hit whatever the rules are. You're like, um, there's a legislation. There's a, this is how we do it. And the authority supervening over the organization has the right to legislate in as, which, in as much as that's been delegated, that decision. And you make the rule. You see, that's the rule. Then there's the carrying out of the rule by the organization, by the subordinates and the, and the person that made the rule for himself. Like, we, we want to do a constitutional amendment. Congress can't pass a law that doesn't apply to the Congress members themselves, right? Wouldn't that be a, a no-brainer? They, they, they didn't put that one in because they were like, we wouldn't have to say that. <laughs> so every case, you have legislation and execution for the governing authority. So let's talk about the non-volitional features of your life. Because uh, the more we talk about you're responsible and you have the capacity to choose, and it's a worship choice between you and God, the more it might seem that we're saying the circumstance that you're in is just something you can choose to be in or not to be in. And there's a problem with that. It's a subtle problem, but the problem is time. You are making decisions now that are going to set you up for what's going to happen later. You are in circumstances right now that are the consequence of decisions that you made before. And that's the power of volition. The tattoo uh, uh, fad that has become mainstream. It's hard if it's, if it's a permanent thing for it to be called a fad, right? Not so much a fad when it's a permanent deal. Uh, the, I think that the, the uh, Seuss had it right with the stars on Nars in the Snoodle store. If you ever read Dr. Seuss, the Snoodles. Um, if you really want to set up a business, figure out actual tattoo removal and just open a shop with a shingle out front just because of the regret because we... Because we did it on a whim, we did it in this moment, we were in a certain frame of mind, and now we're stuck with that snapshot. And there's a big popular thing out there called tattoo regret that a lot of people have. And the illustration is meant to show you that that was a decision that started here, and you're way over here with the consequence of that, that I still have that decision. And that's how marriage works, and actually tons of decisions. I believe that your decision to be here today is setting you up for certain consequences tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that's how life works. That's how pearls are made a little bit at a time. That's how anything worthwhile is done, is that we build in layers with good decisions. So the present consequences of our past choices is the first thing in non-volitional features of your life. 
I don't choose to be in this situation. I don't want to be like this, but here you are. Well, you, in many cases, made prior choices that brought you to this point. This is why it's popular and gross in our culture. It's constantly people saying, well, it is what it is. What that means is right now, this is the situation, and I can war game all the ways I got here, but I have to deal with this situation as it is. Well, what, are that, what does that look like? Well, I might be in, have bad feelings right now. I feel bad. I want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. I choose not to feel bad, but I do anyway. So uh, what causes this? Well, I made bad decisions with nutrition over time. So now I have bad feelings that go with that. For example, I have not exercised as I should. Exercise avoidance. So yesterday I didn't go to the gym. Today I don't feel like I went to the gym yesterday. (laughs) Right? And for me, in the phase of life that I am, I'll just testify. (laughs) The next day might hurt, but it feels a lot better than it hurts. The gym is always a little bit of resistance to exercise, always um, a, a good thing in my experience. I have chemical issues in terms of dependency or, or medication or other things that I feel bad. I don't want to feel bad. Well, what's going on? There is something in many cases, I'm not saying always, but I made a decision beforehand, and here I am facing the consequences. This is the, the, the person that's hung over or something after drinking too much. Well, I have relationship turmoil. It's bad. I have a bad situation in my relationship. And you can say all you want, Pastor, about volition and that I made a choice and I'm making choices. I choose not to be in this situation. Well, the thing is that the relationship turmoil is largely a consequence of prior choices, yours and the other person's. And that's the, t- the difficult part of being in a relationship. But this, is, this, this idea of I'm now living in the bed that I made is a really important process to go through in terms of wisdom, right? So if I messed up and now I'm dealing with a mess, guess what people do? They mess up again to try to get out of it. And now your life is just a, it's just a flaming dumpster, right? Don't do that. Don't make another bad decision heaping on other bad decisions. Well, I made a bad decision, so I'm in this thing, so I have to make another bad decision to get out of it. I had to sacrifice my free market principles to save the free market or some other thing, some, some nonsense. Um, that's a gift from 2007. Relationship turmoil. What I, part of relationships and what often boils over is trouble in the workplace. Why do you have trouble in the workplace? Because there are other people there. That's the reason. If they weren't there, you wouldn't have trouble. You'd have a, well, you wouldn't have the troubles that you do. You have other problems. Well, we can't build this thing unless I have a team to build it. So I'm stuck with fail. I can't. So we got to build the team, get the people together. And now you got trouble. We get the thing built, but we have the trouble of the people in the workplace, right? The Office, popular television show, is all about this. It's about the different clowns. It's a it's a reboot of Seinfeld, really. It's all the, there's a show about nothing that just has all these different clowns bouncing off of each other because of their various you know quirks and personalities and the decisions that they make. And that makes for some great humor because it's us. When, when I was uh, watching The Office, I thought, you know, they should make a Preston City Bible Church edition of The Office where they follow people around with the camera and just the funny things that happen because of our personalities bouncing off of each other. You, would, you could uptick it to, to humor just a little bit, make it a little bit uh, comic intentionally, and it would be uh, just as funny to me as The Office. But nevertheless, it's, it's because of the decisions that we've made that have made us who we are and the circumstance that we're in. And a lot of times you're in a situation where now you, you have to recognize the present is the consequence of the past in many cases. 
and my decisions in the present are going to pave what happens in the future. You could say, well, I'm already losing the chess game. There's, you know, there's too many pieces that are already lost. I can't make any good choices now that are going to improve my situation. So I might as well. That's demonic thinking. That is satanic thinking. You have life. You have breath. Your heart is beating. You are God's image bearer and you have been made to serve him. So worship him with the three pawns and one rook and king that's left on the table. Worship him with what you have. Because the way we measure success really is we don't. We trust in God and he measures the success. Trouble with finances, you can see how past decisions, present consequences, it's kind of straightforward, right? Uh, well, this was done to me. I did this thing in good faith. I trusted God with it. And then this happened and it wasn't in my control. These things do happen and we call them accidents. They do happen. And I'm not saying every circumstance that you're in, everything that you're dealing with now is a consequence of prior volition. But I am saying that a lot of it is. And, it, and, and I'm in this hard thing. I mean, I, I sailed into a storm and now I'm in the storm and I don't want to be in the storm. My volition goes contrary to this situation. Yeah, but, but that's, that's not a choice that you have to make now. You have to deal with the storm. So how do you sail in the storm now? That's the way we have to deal with life. And hopefully you can see this is a really valuable thought process to, to go through. What are my decisions now, given my circumstances and God's revelation? We have accidents. I, I put it in quotes because God is actually working in our lives, and he is intervening either in discipline at times, if we're going through hard times, it may be divine discipline, or in the kind of suffering that helps us grow, the testing and the, the calling out our faith and walking with him because momentary light affliction brings proven character. And you can't grow without a little bit of time in the gym. You can't get strong unless you get a little bit of resistance. And so God does intervene in your life, and it is either getting you back on the path, and that is not punishment technically used. I don't mean we're suffering for our sins. I mean that our sins get, uh, and our waywardness takes us off the path of God's plan for us, and he smacks us back on the path. And uh, the shepherd that I've witnessed, the little kid in Iraq, had a, a dowel rod. It was a stick maybe this long, maybe a little bit longer. It was a rod about, I don't know, a quarter inch, maybe a, a three-eighths inch thick. And he was running behind these sheep, trying to get them out of the road so we could drive our trucks past. And he would just tap them. He'd just a little tap, and the little sheep were skittish, and they jump back on the thing. Imagine omnipotent God bringing discipline to you and me that we learn not to walk off the path. It's, to him, it's just a little tap. To us, <gasps> it's overwhelming. God, take it away. And divine discipline does come, but it's always our Father saying, get back on the path. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 12 and Proverbs chapter 3. These are not your choice. The circumstances that are out of your control, even if you chose, made decisions that put you into the circumstance, you're not choosing this now. It's the consequence that's happened. And I just, we have things in our lives that we are not choosing. So you can't just recourse to volition and say, I say no, and, you know, rub the genie. It's not happening. It is happening, and you now have to choose what you do about it. The first thing is, when you're in trouble, is to tell the truth about it I'm in trouble. If you're in, if you're in a hole, they say, quit digging, right? Tell the truth that this is the wrong way. Everybody's been in that car, haven't you, with, uh, with somebody that doesn't like to admit they're wrong? And so they keep driving, even though they're, it's getting worse, you're taking us farther. I remember before GPSs, the cell phone before the GPS, that was a horrible thing because your wife or girlfriend could call her parents that you were late to visit. She could call them, but you, but you couldn't get directions. 
so she could tell them that we're late, we're lost. I don't want you to call your parents and tell them that. <laughs> we're lost. We only did that once. But, um, <laughs> but the, you know, the, 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 some of us are stubborn, and we no, I think, it's, I think the road will curve this way. It's going gonna, it's gonna to head back east. And you, you don't know you've, you've messed up. You need to stop. You need to find somebody, get, get your bearings and get uh, turned around the way you need to go. And um, that's the volitional thing you do when you're lost, when you're in a situation that you don't want to be in. Don't make bad decisions in the present because you're in bad present circumstances. You have to start making good decisions, even if they hurt. So divine institution, number one, we said is you and God. All right. I'm setting us up to talk about marriage. Because the deal with your marriage is how you relate to that man or woman for God's sake. You husbands, how you relate to your wives is about your worship of God. You wives, how you relate to your husbands is about your worship of God. Thank you, Father, for this man, she says, who is uh, honoring you as a husband and caring for me as best he can. He's not perfect, but thank you for the blessing that that is. That's worship to God. Father, why do you make me have to deal with this thing? I don't know how to deal with it. He is not doing anything that you want him to do, and I have to lament to you. And you go to lament Psalms and ask God why. It's a thing in the Psalms. And uh, he wants you to talk to him. And sometimes I don't understand what you could be possibly doing. Of course, Romans 8 is lurking in the back of your mind. God, I know you're working this together for good, but this is crazy. And you, you call out to him. Call to him. That too is worship of God. It is. God, help me. God, intervene. Get your hands out of your pockets, however you say it. We need, I need you in this. And that's your recourse. And every institution is about you and God. Notice how we've edited Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel just exactly at the right place to show it in church. Okay. Um, so you and God. On God's side, this is who God is to us in terms of the authority structure. He is the moral anchor point. He has the righteousness. He has the right answers. He has the omniscience. He has the omnipotence. He's God. So he is the basis for our understanding of what is right and wrong in terms of decision-making. He is the moral anchor point, and that's very important because he isn't just the one who has said what he wants with his legislation. See, that's, um, that's, a, that's an error that's been made in some circles of... Uh, of um, Theo, um, what's the, what, um, oh, the theonomy. The theonomists will say that, <clears throat> that um, God says it, and so it's right just based on the fact that he said it. Well, it is right on the fact that he said it because he is righteous, because he's the morally righteous God. So whatever comes from him in legislation is the best and the highest. That's the way to think about God's legislation or his commands, his directives. That's also called revelation when God speaks. We know what he wants because he told us. Does he want me to love this person that's unlovable or not? Yes, he does. But he doesn't want you to trust the person necessarily. He doesn't want you to have overwhelming affection for the person in some lie that you can't. He wants you to consider what he wants for that person and act on it, and often beginning with prayer. He wants you to love that person. So moral, moral anchor point is your legislation. He is the source of our accountability. See, this is a higher to lower kind of thing, and he does bring accountability, and we call that judgment. He uh, also has enforcement. God brings enforcement. This is all functions of government. Is that not true in terms of our relationship with him? And we should say behind all of it, involved with all of it, is all of God's attributes, including his initiating love. We love because he first loved us. We didn't start off and say, oh, I love God. God loved the world this way that he gave his only begotten son. And so 
God is the initiator in love. We bring submission to him. We, the humans, and made in his image. Notice that the blue color is a little bit lighter because we're made in his image, but we're not God. And so the relationship isn't uh, equal footing in this sense. But it is a real personal relationship between two persons. We bring submission, we really do, to, to sovereignty in the face of sovereignty and omnipotence. The human response, the only right response is always uh, whatever you say. And every knee will bow and every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. My free grace brethren that don't understand the concept of submission because they think that to say, submitting to God is some sort of lordship thing have started with theology and not the Bible. And that's a tragedy because it weakens your valid theological position. We believe in the absolute freeness of God's grace and the responsibility of man to trust in Christ as a Savior. And the only way you can receive eternal life is to trust in Christ. And that is properly stated free grace or biblical theology. However, man's responsibility in the face of his creator as the creature is to submit to him. And the way we submit to Christ is obeying the command to trust in him as the beginning of our relationship with him. Now, I didn't say we're successful in submission. I said it's our universal responsibility. We are, because God has legislated, because God has spoken in Revelation, we are to pay attention to what he said. And here's the magnificent grace of God. The omniscient one wants you to talk to him and tell him what's on your mind. He's holding your brain cells together so that you can carry thoughts off and talk to him. He makes all of the physics of your body work so that you even can say a word to him, and yet he wants you to. And uh, it's been said prayer is more about the one praying than the one you're praying to, and I don't think that's properly stated, but God is omniscient. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, and yet the personal relationship is real. You are talking to him. He is listening to you. He wants you to pay attention to him. Obedience is related to submission, and it has obviously a connection to accountability. Now, obeying something isn't quite the same as submitting. Does everybody understand that? You can submit to your husband's women and not, not necessarily obey a statement that they make. You can be submissive to your husband in a biblical sense, not in a worldly sense, in a biblical sense. You can submit to your husband's as to the Lord and disobey him in specific things that he says. Because God said, I am to do this, and my husband says, I'm to do the opposite. You disobey the husband because the higher authority said, said the, the first thing. And so that's disobedient in that sense to the husband, but it's submissive. I'm not putting myself over you. I'm saying that God has said other, and I'm still your wife, but I'm in terms of biblical hupotasso, as we'll see. We are called to emulate God as his children. And I don't want to, in this transactional discussion, I don't want to make it like we're not in a relationship. That's why the initiating love. But there is the mechanics of the relationship. Like we're not the creator, we're the creature. And we are not asking God to be like us. He has made us in his image because he wants us to be like him. And then we have responsive adoration in this relationship. Responsive adoration. One of the great, uh, the second definition in the Oxford Dictionary for an adoration or for adoring is worship. And so um, there's something about using this word for our response to God that doesn't go the other way. God's adoring us. He does in the sense of loving us, but we adore him as the great God, as our creator and our worship of him. And this is our responsive love to him. This is, this is, the baseline for functioning as designed, in my understanding, as a human being. I haven't tried to encompass everything that is involved in being a human, but 
every decision we make, this is on the line. Are we walking like this? And this seems to be what the Bible's pointing us to in terms of the creator-creature distinction. So, um, so this is the first institution, and if it's this way, that my decisions as a husband or as a wife are designed to fit within this pattern, you can see how Paul uh, clarifies marriage in um, Ephesians chapter 5. I told you I'd look at, no, I don't want to go there yet. I told you I would look at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says in the English uh, New American Standard, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. The God is the head of Christ, 1 Corinthians eleven three. In Greek, it looks like this, and I'll translate it, but, fellow, I want for you to know, I want you to know, and you could translate that, I understand, I suppose, but notice, the legislation is specific. God has revealed, and now you need to pay attention to what God has said, that Paul, just a, just a, a person God is using to get his word out. I want you to know that of every husband, that of every andros, male in the conversation about marriage, so husband, there's no other word for husband. Man and husband are, are interchangeable words or meanings because the same word in Greek will be used. And the same with wife and woman. See, but from design, from the very beginning of our design, when God made woman from man, um, he made a wife, and that's the design. And, and that's, if you want to look at the blueprint, Genesis 2. All right. Of every husband, the head is Christ. Further, the de, I'm translating in further, de takes you a step farther in the conversation. Of the wife, the husband is, uh, of the wife, the husband. And he doesn't, uh, a kefale, and de is post-positive. The head of the wife, the husband, is what he says. And still further, de again, the head of Christ is God. And so what's very helpful about this verse for the feminists to repent and come back to the Bible and let God be God and fit into his design, which is what we must do if we're going to have any success or joy in this life. What this does is it shows us there is a difference between authority and value. There's a difference between authority and essence. There's a difference between role and head and body. That's an authority difference, head versus body. But it subsists within the Trinity. The Father and the Son are in a relationship of head and body, like a wife, a husband and wife, head and body. And so, so this theory, if you import from what the world does, with its satanic shroud of of rebellion against God's authority, if you take what, what the world does with um, authority and you, and you read it through sin and rape and all the things that are the destructiveness of God's institutions, then you can't stomach what God has to say here. But if you let God speak, if you let God be the designer and say there's a function that you're designed for, then this frees you. This is, this is the stuff. That in the Godhead, there is headship, father over son. And that's an authority arrangement. It's a vital union, head and body. Think about it. Head without the body, that's a horror show. There's no, there's no use. Body without the head, just as bad. Together, functioning together, but different roles, body and head. And that's, that's true in the Godhead. That's true, according to 1 Corinthians 11.3, between husband and wife. And 
we need to embrace that. And um, at least this verse, I would contend in the first part, every, the head of every husband is Christ, I would say uh, puts spiritual leadership in the household squarely on our shoulders. And our tendency in sinfulness to be passive men is our shame, our eternal shame uh, on display uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, I contend. Spiritual passive passivity is not uh, acceptable. But there's a, there's a game on. There's a race to watch. There's something else besides God's design for my life. In Ephesians 5, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. We're out of time, so I'll cut to, um, I'll cut to the translation. Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. He says, Hygunikes, the wives or, or women. You wives, and it's got to be vocative because he's going to then talk about them in the second person. You wives, to your own husbands be submissive. You ever say this word right here? It's a good reminder. Those of you who are laughing are, are, are um, trusting in the, in, the, in the process here. I, everybody see the I? See the D? You can see the D. It's a cursive D. I, O, Idiot. Just put a T on there. Idiot. But that's not what it means. I-S, idios, idios, is a Greek word that doesn't mean idiot. It means one's own. Idiosyncrasies. You have your own little thing. It doesn't mean you're an idiot if you have your idiosyncrasies. Um, I like schlog. Um, locks. I don't like quickset. I want to get schlag, for example. That's an idiosyncrasy. That's a weird, like, maybe you, I'm a big person about locks. I, I don't know. Idiosyncrasies. You have little things about you. They're your own little things. That's where this shows up in English. Idios, your own. But it feels funny that wise be submissive to your idiot. And I know we can all have a good chuckle about that, but notice that this word, much more importantly than saying that something about his, his intelligence, is saying he's yours. Doesn't say to somebody else's husband. It says to your own. Wives to your own. Uh, andros, husbands, or could be males or, or men, as opposed to anthropos, humans. This is andros, men, but it's, it's husbands. And then this is the verb that you can't get away from. Hupo, tasso. Hupo means under. Tasso means to put. So to put under is the etymological meaning of this word, and it means in our English, submit. Do you know what submit is in English? I think it's Latin. Sub is under. Mit is place. Submit. It just means, it doesn't mean you're tapping out and you're the, the lower fighter in, in mixed martial arts or something, submissions. We've got all this, this idea about submissions. There's, there's, uh, there's the, the, the sexual world of deviancy that talks about submission. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the Bible and authority structures. There is an authority structure, and you place yourself in it, and that is always, look at it, a choice. He doesn't say, husbands, keep your wives in line. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. It's authority but it's your choice, and it's served up. Now, you don't get to choose whether it's the right or wrong choice. You don't get to choose the system. You get to choose how you'll operate in it. Will you play 
ball. Will you do God's, you do it God's way or will you not? And that's why volition is so vital. To your own husband, be, be submissive in the pr- present active imperative, just as hos to kurio, just as to the Lord. Doesn't make him Jesus. But as you'll see in the passage, he's supposed to act like Jesus. I believe, men, if we were better at Ephesians 5.25, women would be better at Ephesians 5.23 or 22. Know what I mean? If you loved yourself sacrificially like you're supposed to, it's a lot easier for her to submit to that. Right? Seems, that seems to be right. Yeah, that's good math. But somehow it just doesn't play out that way so often. Think about it. Wives, your own husbands be submissive or submit as to the Lord. Let me go grab the, the one about the husbands. That'd be selective in our, in our weapons. Is that it? No, one more. Nope, I know what happened. Bear with me. There we go. As for the men, second person, present active imperative. You're responsible to, agapao, to love. Love your, your own wives. He doesn't say idios here. He says heautone, but it has the same effect. It's reflexive pronoun, your own, belonging to you, the wives of yourselves. Is the, is the English literal, but we, won't, we don't say it that way, the wives of yourselves. We say your own, but that's what it means. Love your wives. To what, to what extent? Just as Christ also loved the church. Wives are summarily commanded to submit to their husbands. Husbands are summarily commanded to love their wives. And the difference between the two statements, the difference between the two roles, explains that there are two roles. It shows you that there are different responsibilities. And we have much more to say about this. I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger. But just like we said in the relationship between God and man, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, that there's the headship and bodyship, there's, there's this relationship between husband and wife that God established. It's an authority structure. As with all authority structures, you have to choose. Will you be the head husbands? Will you be the body wives? Will you lead? Will you help? Will you self-sacrificially love? Will you self-deferring submit? Will you do what God has said and he places it on your shoulders? It's a choice you have to make. And if we can't figure this one out, what in the world are we doing with civil government? What in the world could we ever expect with any other authority structures which actually do have enforcement? I'll close on this one for you who are new to this idea. (laughs) This might be, oh, this is crazy. I'm not talking about... um, uh, patriarchal abuse, but God the Father is the ruler. P- Patria is father, archi rule. That's how it is. I'm not talking about abuse of authority. We'll get to that. I'm talking about God's arrangement, God's design. Notice in the structure that God has created, nowhere in the Bible do you have any provision in the Old Testament, Mosaic Law, or anywhere else for husbands to control their wives. There is nothing about enforcement in the scriptures. There's nothing about physical, uh, about physical relationship between husband and wife with him physically coercing her, anything like that. The physical stuff between husband and wife in the Bible is about whose body is whose. Hers is yours, yours is hers, and you're supposed to fulfill the, the marital function toward one another for, for, you know, for each other's sake. But there is no enforcement. There is no, if she's going to mind me or else, there's nothing like what you have with parents and children. 
We do see enforcement with fathers and children and government, uh, federal, civil, civil government has enforcement, but there's nothing like that in marriage because it's not that kind of relationship. It's head and body. And we have to keep that in mind because what will be construed by what we're saying is something abusive or destructive and we're not saying anything like that. In fact, we believe with all our hearts that the alternative to what we're saying is abusive and destructive. It makes a woman something that she's not trying to be what she is and she'll never accomplish it. She'll never attain. And a husband too. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word, the design you've given us of government in every level and the power to make decisions that you provided us. Father, we recognize that in um, the circumstance we're in today, in this free environment, we can speak the truth in love and we can proclaim the truth without expectation of opposition, at least today from the government, from the culture at large. Father, we can see a time coming when we will have to make these kinds of decisions knowing that they bring persecution, that they're coming uh, as, as a consequence of us speaking the truth in love. We can expect hardship. So, Father, while the sun is out, while we enjoy this prosperity, don't let us waste the moment. Let us be about your work. Bring those that need to hear the gospel to our Uh, to our lives and help us have the words to say to them when you do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.